If you've got your Bible, and I hope you do, would you go to John chapter 18 with me this morning? John chapter 18. It's been a while since I was able to say a different number of a chapter in the Gospel of John, but we are headed there. And on this Thanksgiving Sunday, I want to give us an idea that you can ponder today, but take with you, not just today, but into this week, and maybe it's something you need to hear to apply to your life. It's Thanksgiving weekend, and as we are here and we are experiencing the reality of life, Brother John prayed about peace for Israel, and we think about the Ukraine and Russia, that conflict. We think about what's happening in the Middle East. We think about the fact that we are experiencing death here and yet birth. And we are experiencing all the aspects of life. But as we deal with all of this, and we have a particularly unique experience in the 21st century, because not only are we experiencing this, but because of social media, we can experience this almost in real time. Over the last 24 to 36 hours, it's not just that we've heard about war. The atrocities can be right there for you to see on Facebook or Twitter or anything else. And so here we are, we are faced with this. We live in a time and an age when anxiety and depression, anger, frustration, tension builds. So what are we going to do on this Thanksgiving of 2023? What will we do here in St. John's, Newfoundland, in Canada, and all of these things? And I want you to realize that I want to look at the first 12 verses of John chapter 18 as we begin the passion narrative of John's gospel And I want you to realize this one eternal truth, and maybe you need to hear this today. Jesus Christ was bound. He was taken captive so you and I can be set free. And I want you to hang on to that. Today, I want to begin an epic journey over the next six or so times that I will preach. And with only two months and a bit from Christmas, and I know because I'm married to the world's biggest Christmas fan. She has been in already full production mode for Christmas. Our house is already being transformed. And I can pretty much guarantee that all of you at some point over the next two, two and a half months are going to hear several different Christian cliches, and one of which is going to be this statement, especially if you're around church or Christianity. And that is this statement, Jesus was born to die. And he was indeed. So how fitting that we would actually study through the death of Christ as we make our way to the birth of Christ that we will celebrate in just a little over two months. It's an incredible thing, and I trust that you'll understand and embrace and indeed rest on and in the idea that Jesus Christ was born to die. I want you to know as men and women here this morning, and any of you tuned in online, Jesus didn't just, was, wasn't just born to die, he was born to die for you and for me, for us. In fact, if you study the Gospel of John, verses 1 to 12 is the first of six section, sections that will take you through the death and burial of Jesus in chapters 18 and 19. Chapter 20 is focused on the resurrection, which I can't wait to get to. And then we've got that famous concluding chapter, chapter 21, where Jesus and Peter will talk by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. But stuck in between all of this, as you come to the end of chapter 20, in the beginning of chapter 1, chapter 21, sorry, are these words. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, 
which are not written in this book. But these, John says, are written, and here's his purpose. He actually waits almost to the end of his gospel to tell you why he wrote it. And he said, I chose these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So that's his purpose. He wants everyone that reads the gospel of John to come to that conclusion. Jesus isn't just God or a God. He is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And then he tells you what results by you believing that. And that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, I've quoted these two verses many, many times, and many of you are probably thanking the Lord that I'm finally getting towards the end of the Gospel of John, because this is Sermon 104. (laughs) But allow me to ask you all this morning, what is your response to those two verses? Can I ask you, even as we begin this journey, do you believe Do you have life in Jesus' name? Is Jesus more than a man, more than a political revolutionary? Jesus is Lord according to the Bible, but have you submitted to his lordship? Jesus is not only Lord, but he's Savior according to the Bible, but have you come to him for rescue and help? My heart is breaking Because of social media, I've been able to see many, many of the graphic images, not just of the last 48 hours or so, but even all the way back to the beginning of the Ukraine war. It is something, I almost think we are deadened because we have so much television and so much uh, grotesque uh, violence in all of the television shows and movies, and then that's not even to mention all the video games that we watch, and it's almost like we're numb to the tragedy of life all around us. But trust me, as a pastor who's had to be in the room with people as they have suffered and died, it changes you. Do you have life in his name? Jesus was, or sorry, John was moved of God in in the gospel to show us a side of Jesus in the series of conversations in this book we call the gospel of John. It's real people, whether it's his family, like his mother at the wedding in John chapter 2, Or that wonderful woman at the well in John 4 who was embarrassed and struggling. Whether it was the man born blind in John chapter 9 or choosing his 12 disciples in John chapters 1 and 2. There is the religious component like when the Pharisee Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night in John chapter 3. Or when he heals the official son in John chapter 4. Whether Jesus was cleansing a temple or addressing a crowd in John 6. Whether he was walking on water or feeding 5,000, the reality is John wants you and I to know that Jesus spoke to, taught, saved, confronted, and even rebuked the disciples. He challenged the Pharisees and the religious establishment. He cast out demons. He stared down Rome. And Jesus presents to us, or sorry, John presents to us Jesus sent from God and yet fully human. John starts his gospel in chapter 1 with an 18-verse introduction and then gives us a series of signs and I am statements. And that's why he says what he does in John chapter 20. Jesus did many other signs, but I chose these seven signs, these seven statements. And now he wants us to know his version, his eyewitness account of Jesus Now he's getting into his betrayal and his death and his burial and his resurrection. And when he's done, 
His desire, his goal, his purpose, his prayer, his mission is that you and I will not only know about Jesus, but we will believe in and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And not only that, but that you'll experience not just any life, but eternal life. Eternal life is so much more in the Bible than just a state of being. I want to live forever. I need you to know, every one of us in the room, you are going to live forever. The question is, where, with whom, and to what quality? That's the question. And wonder of wonders, if you can believe it or not, in his introduction, John brings us back in John chapter 18, verse 1, back to the beginning, almost as if John wants you and I to think about the Garden of Eden, to think about Adam and Eve. That's why I asked Deanna to read John chapter, or sorry, Genesis chapter 3. And with that in mind, the words of Genesis 3, let's read John chapter 18, verses 1 to 12. Here's what John records in verse 1. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, that's the prayer that he's just finished in chapter 17, along with all that he said in chapters 13 to 16, he went out with his disciples across the book, brook Kedron, and there where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, take note of that, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. All of these are markers for you to take notice of. Verse 3, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there, notice this, with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now take note of verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So Jesus asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. And that's important, verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then, you got to love Simon. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And we even get his name. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? And watch this. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word again. Now let me ask you, did you see it? Did you see it? Genesis 3 and John 18, 1 to 12. Jesus is going to succeed in every way where Adam fell. Watch this now. Jesus enters a garden of his own choosing. Jesus will surrender himself to the will of his father, be betrayed by both Judas and indeed the world. But notice with me, it's not by force, it's by choice. He does it by choice. He goes in and he does this of his own will. He does this willingly. Jesus will drink the cup of suffering, something he's spoken about and prayed about, and it's for our salvation and his glory. And I want to ask you, 
as you look at these verses, I pray that you and I will see who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, so that we will believe and trust in Jesus and have eternal life. Kent Hughes sets up this passage so well. He says, the ministry in the upper room is over. The Passover table bears the cold remains of the Paschal meal. Judas is gone. The intercessory prayer has ended. And with the echoes of the last hymn still floating in the midnight air, Jesus and his disciples have headed for Gethsemane and indeed Jesus for the cross. Here in these momentous uh, final moments that are recorded in John chapter 18 and 19, the imminent events are of ultimate importance. And this is why you need to study this. Because none of the wonderful things that are promised during Christ's ministry are going to be possible without him. You see, if he can promise eternal life, if he can say, I'll send the Holy Spirit as a comforter, if Jesus says, I'll return for you like he does in John 14, if he says he'll prepare a place for them, if he says the treasures of grace and salvation are all dependent upon the manner of Christ's death and his resurrection. So, how will he conduct himself in life, especially in these last few hours? Because here's the deal. Chapter 18 and 19 and 20 are meant to validate and show us that either Jesus was telling the truth or he's the world's greatest fraud of human history. So if you're taking notes, notice number one, a garden revisited. A garden revisited. Our passage tells us that Jesus left the upper room with the disciples and they traveled to a garden. They went to a garden. It's not a named garden, but it's a well-known one. And we're going to see Christ's lordship and his control, even in his choice of the place that he encounters his captors. You see, the Lord deliberately chose Gethsemane. John's specific mention of it as a garden in verse 1 wants us to know that John had in mind a deliberate comparison back to the Garden of Eden. The symbolism is amazing. Think about what Deanna read. The first Adam begins life in a garden. Christ, the second Adam, came to the end of his life in a garden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the Savior, Jesus, will overcome sin. In the Garden of Eden, Adam falls. But in Gethsemane, Jesus conquers. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve hid themselves. Remember what Deanna read? But in the Gethsemane Garden, our Lord boldly presents himself. He comes forward and says, whom do you speak? Seek. In Eden, the sorn was drawn, and the angel guards the entrance to block Adam and Eve out of it. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus tells Peter, put your sword away. But I want you to notice verse 1 again with me. Notice it says they traveled, and John wants us to know they traveled across the Kedron Valley. And here's why you need to study your Bible, and it'll come to life to you. John wants us to understand this is important. He doesn't mention this Kedron Valley by accident. It's not incidental. You've got to realize what's going on. They're on the second last day of Passover. A drain runs from the temple altar down to the Kedron Ravine to drain away the blood of the sacrifices. At this time of the year, more than 200,000 lambs are slain. So when Jesus and his disciples cross the Kedron Valley, it literally runs red with the blood of sacrifice. So Jesus leads his disciples from this into the Garden of Gethsemane, and they cross a blood-flowing river where Jesus is going to say, 
saying, I am going to shed my blood for you. I don't want you to miss all of the symbolism, everything that's happening. This is divine poetry. And look at it. Jesus is not afraid. He's not afraid. Now, he is tired. We know that. We know that Jesus prays in Matthew and Mark and Luke and asks the Father passionately pleading that this is about to overcome him and he wonders if there's any way for this cup to pass from him. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. But John wants us to know Jesus is the one in charge. Jesus chooses to go to this garden. It is him not hiding. This was a place they regularly went. And the hour has come. Remember back in John chapter 2 at the wedding feast when Mary says, I, I don't want this guy to be embarrassed. I want you to perform a miracle. And Jesus tenderly looks at his mother and says, why should I do this, mom? My hour has not yet come. In John chapter 7, religion and crowds couldn't touch Jesus or arrest him because his hour had not yet come. But in John chapter 12 and following, Jesus would tell the people and his disciples, my hour is come. He opens his prayer in John 17. My father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. You see, once again, we are at this point. It was a planned hour. It was a willed hour. In fact, what we're about to see is that everywhere that Adam failed, once again, Jesus is going to succeed. And that's why John wants us to see this. He's not running from power. Jesus is in power. He is the only one being obedient to the Father's will. And Jesus is going to cry out just about 10 or 12 hours from this moment, it is finished. Deanna read Genesis 3.15. They call it the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. When God told Adam and told that serpent and told Eve, looked at that serpent possessed by the devil and said, you will be against me and you will bruise his heel, but I will crush your head. Actually, John chapter 18, verses 1 to 12, is the crushing of his heel. And so Jesus returns to the garden so that hope and life can be offered. Friends, it's the good news. Tragedy will overcome, be overcome by triumph. Satan and the world are going to attack and even rejoice and seek to destroy. And yet in the face of their most grotesque travesties will come the greatest victory Ever. Do you realize that one of your favorite hymns for many of you is actually finds its meaning in this passage? I heard an old, old story how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. And I heard about his groaning, of his precious blood's atoning. And then I repented of my sin and did what? Won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me, and he bought me with his redeeming blood. Friends, he loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. So we have a garden revisited, but secondly, we have a garden confrontation. Notice this in verses 1 and 2. See, Matthew and Mark and Luke fill in the gap. There's a large gap between John 18.1 and John 18.2. In between there is the Gethsemane prayer. 
the sleepiness of the disciples, the agony of the cross as it comes to bear on Jesus. And once again, as I've said to you, where he prays, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, and he says these precious words, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And don't miss the garden symbolism. Adam and Eve in the garden spoke with the devil. Jesus speaks to his father. Adam and Eve lived in a garden of perfection and delight, but Jesus enters into a garden of fearfulness and loneliness. And so here we are. It's a cold spring evening. For a moment, try to envision the beauty and yet the airy sense of that night. All that Jesus has done and encountered over the last 18 to 36 months Think of the miracles he's performed and the accusations he's faced. The love that he has given and been shown along with the hatred that's been shot at him. Imagine the demands and the questions he's encountered. Imagine both the accusal and the professions. Jesus has been chased and sought after. He's been touched and scorned. And yet here he is, laboring in prayer. The disciples struggling to stay awake. Human fatigue messed with, mixed with stress and confusion are taking hold of their bodies and their minds. The Passover is happening, so there's more sounds in the distance than usual. Jerusalem is both crowded and yet filled with tension. And that's funny to me. Because if you remember, I said Jesus was born to die. If you were to go back to Matthew chapter 2 at Jesus' birth, you will read that Jerusalem was also a time then filled with crowds and filled with tension. And 30 years later, that tension has returned. But this time, this, this time, religion is not just involved, but now working with the political powers of the time. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2 of our passage. Now, Judas, who betrayed him and also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with disciples, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Again, I want you to realize what's happening. John goes out of his way to bring Judas back into focus. Judas is the antagonist of this story. And it's noteworthy because this is a place where Judas might have expected to find Jesus. Since our passage says, Jesus often met there with his disciples. Oh, the tragedy. Judas goes to a place where he heard Jesus pray to be the location that he would betray him. But notice, Jesus isn't avoiding arrest. He went out of his way to make himself available. What a calloused heart Judas must have had in betraying Jesus. Matthew and Mark and Luke tell us that he kissed him fervently. There's nothing more tragic and ironic than the betrayal of a friend. I know that personally what that feels like. I once had a guy who claimed to be my friend and betrayed me in a and when we had a confrontation, I remember telling him, I said, you are the type of guy that will stab me in the back and then sit with me and call the ambulance and wait for the ambulance to come get me. This is Judas. Can you imagine betrayal with a kiss? But notice we have a Roman contingent and a Jewish one. Look at our passage. This was a sizable group. The word says band, which actually means cohort. Believe it or not, a Roman cohort was up to a thousand men. 
You see, this wasn't some little militia. This wasn't a couple of RNC cars. Now, while most people don't think it was a 1,000, most commentators believe there was a minimum of 200 Roman soldiers, along with upwards to 100 of the temple police. And why? 300 soldiers with torches and lanterns and swords. Why here? Why now? Why Judas? Well, think about it. Roman religion, every time they wanted to arrest Jesus, what would we told? That they were too afraid to do it. They were afraid of the mob. They were afraid of the people. Only a week ago, Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of a foal in which they cried, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. So politics and religion feared the mob, but they also feared Jesus. They knew about and had heard of his power. They know about the miracles. Don't forget we're only days away from when Jesus raised Lazarus. That's still fresh on the hearts and minds of Israel and Rome. How do you arrest a man who can have power over the dead? And then Judas gives him the perfect opportunity. He comes to them and for 30 pieces of silver, he says, listen, we can do it under the cover of darkness. We can do it quietly. We'll slip in, we'll slip out while everyone's asleep. We'll grab Jesus and his little crew who followed him. We'll get the trials and the verdict in before the world even wakes up. The fix could be in. And if you notice, they bring weapons and they bring lanterns and torches, almost as if they think they're going to have to look and find Jesus and his disciples hiding. It's like almost they're going to play capture the flag or hide and seek. And so... All people have turned against Jesus. Creation itself has rejected him. Political power, religious power, and Satan have all come together to eliminate the threat. That's why Genesis 3.15 should come into view. And yet what's amazing here is we see Jesus as God in a unique way. Notice what it says. Notice what it says. And it says here, verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, we see his omniscience. He knows everything, and we see his omnipotence. Jesus is in control of the situation. And notice, Jesus doesn't hide. He doesn't fear. He's not angry. He's not anxious. He's not impatient. He simply is. This was the plan. This is the hour. And so we go from a garden revisited to a garden confrontation. And then thirdly, we go to a garden announcement. Watch this next. I love this. 200, 300, 400 Roman soldiers, temple police. And the reality is we've got hundreds against 12. Jesus and 11 disciples, mostly fishermen, only one Jewish zealot amongst them, 11 scared, tired, confused men. Actually, it was likely only 10 because in the Gospel of Mark, we're told that someone's already run away naked. Aren't you, you, what do you want to bet? He's thankful that he doesn't get named. (laughs) that we don't know who it is. But in reality, it's not the disciples who are afraid. Did you notice? It's the military force. I love how one commentator puts it. He says, they feel they are hopelessly outnumbered by one person. Hopelessly outnumbered by one person. Look at again at verse 4. Jesus knew what would happen to him, and he came forward to them and said, Whom do you speak? Rather than running or hiding, Jesus knows what's coming. 
Jesus actually goes out and confronts them. In fact, it's Jesus who asks the approaching crowd or mob if they know what their own intentions and agenda are. Richard Phillips says, Jesus proved himself to not only be the master of circumstances, but also the master of souls. So large an armed force. And yet, the other gospels tell us, Judas led the way, identified Jesus with a kiss, and then John tells us that Jesus says, whom do you seek? And the soldier said, Jesus of Nazareth. And then try to imagine just a little bit when Jesus looks at them, tired and meek and worn out, this giver of life and healer, this man that mothers brought their babies to and women dared to touch, the demons cowered, and he looks at them and he says, I am he. And the words reveal Jesus' power. And all of these people that are there, these Romans who are legionnaires, probably battle-scarred veterans, drew back and fall to the ground. They are actually paralyzed in fear. This is the great I am statement all through John's gospel. Remember it? Jesus was the one who said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And before the flaming of arresting torches spoke, the voice that Moses had heard from the burning bush, I am who I am. And utterly daunted, they reel back and fall to the ground. Alexander McLaren says, I'm inclined to think here that there was a moment of a little rending of the veil of his flesh, an emission of some flash of the brightness that was always tabernacled within Jesus. When he said, I am he, there was something that made them feel, this is one before whom violence cowers abased and whose presence impurity is to hide its face. What's it like to stand before Almighty God? John had said earlier in John chapter 10 that he lays down his life and only he can take it up again. He made a promise that no one can take his life from him. But I want you to see Jesus' love and protection. Look at verses 7 to 10. So he says to them a second time, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Don't miss it. The soldiers and the police, they didn't arrive there just to get Jesus. They wanted the disciples. It was perfect. We can get Jesus and his disciples. And that, doesn't, that makes sense, doesn't it? If you want to get rid of someone, then get rid of the witnesses. Have you not watched a mob movie? That's what you do. Silence anyone who could make trouble. There was little doubt that the soldiers intended to arrest not only Jesus, but everyone. And even though one has escaped... Christ protected all of his followers. Do you know that Martin Luther believed that that protection in John 18 was the greatest miracle of all that happened in Gethsemane? This royal command, John Calvin said, here we see how the Son of God not only submits to the death, to a death of his own accord, but by his obedience, he may blot out our transgressions, but also how he discharges the office of good shepherd in protecting his flock. In John chapter 10, he said, I am the good shepherd. And he promised that he would not lose even one of those who belong to him. Again, one man says the evangelist does not speak merely of their bodily life, but rather means that Christ, sparing them for a time, made provision for their eternal salvation. 
And this played out so well in the final two verses because finally we have a garden gospel. A garden gospel. Notice Simon Peter, who I identify with, the impulsive one, pulls out his sword and lops off the ear of the high priest servant Malchus. But Jesus stops Peter. We're told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus doesn't just stop him, but he heals Malchus. He touches his ear and heals him and reattaches his ear. But why do you think Jesus does this? Well, first, I want you to know today in 2023, Jesus is teaching us violence is not the gospel. Hear me now. Jesus was in charge here, and Jesus was going to lay down his life. This is Philippians 2 being played out before us. He willingly gave up his throne. Secondly, he's teaching Peter that God's will and way is always better than his will or way. Don't forget, Peter struggled with this whole gospel thing. Whether it's back in Matthew 16, whether it's the transfiguration, whether it's the upper room, Peter wanted political victory. Does that not sound familiar today? Oh, I wish the Church of Canada, the United States, would understand the gospel is more powerful than politics. The gospel is more powerful than religion. But most importantly, Jesus stops Peter because Peter's solution wouldn't save anyone. Jesus' plan would make the way for untold thousands to be saved. But you know, there's a little background here that might be at play. As I was studying for this sermon, I found out that in Judaism, if you believed that the high priest was not acting appropriately and you wanted to embarrass him and dishonor him, you mutilated his right ear. And it could be that Peter, trying to make a point, because I don't think that Peter thought him and his 10 cronies were going to take on these Roman soldiers and this temple police. And so some commentators believe that what Peter was trying to do was make a point. And he lops off this ear of the high priest's servant. So his attitude is, I can't get to the priest, but I can get to this guy, and I'll send a message that this is wrong. And I wonder if it's true because in verse 18... When Peter denies Jesus a third time, it's because he's accused by the cousin of Malchus who says, I know who you are. You're the guy that lopped off my cousin's ear. And it could be that Peter was trying to make a religious statement. And so I want you to realize that John wants us to know political power nor religion will save us. So making political statements and making religious statements can make me maybe make you feel good. Maybe it makes for great Facebook posts and twi- tweets on Twitter or X or whatever you call it. Maybe it helps you get a uh, protest going, but it doesn't save anybody. Only the plan and will of God does. The great point is that Christ is sovereign and he is submitting to the Father's will for him to die on the cross. He would drink the cup of wrath so you and I could drink the cup of blessing. And this is why... We're told this. To reject Jesus is to place our hands on this cup of wrath with no choice but to drink its mixture of death and torment forever. Meanwhile, every believer who drinks from the cup of God's salvation receives it only because Jesus drank the cup of wrath in our place. Man of sorrows, what a name, right? In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior, amen? And so the Bible is so wonderfully crafted together. Some people have said they put the Bible in terms of words. God, man, Christ, response. 
Some have said creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration. Calvary Baptist, I want you to realize if you're here this morning, God saves real, not imaginary sinners. Before the cross, we can completely be ourselves. Confession is not an admission of defeat. It's the first step in living in light of redemption's victory. But it's funny. The Bible begins in a garden, and the Bible actually ends in one. In Genesis, we have two trees. In Revelation 22, we only have one, the tree of life. Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden so they wouldn't touch the tree of life. In Revelation, all Christians are invited in to heaven to participate and enjoy the tree of life. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is done. When the first Adam brought death into the world in a garden, Jesus, the second Adam, brought life into the world in a garden. And that's why the garden is so significant. In John chapters 18 to 20, this garden becomes the place of redemption, not revolt. The place of great reversal, transforming the biblical garden from the place of cursing to the place of blessing. It's paradise renewed. God removed the first Adam from the garden, but entered himself as the second Adam to surrender to the curse for the sake of humanity. And so are you here this morning? You see, unbelievers recognize their sin as their freedom. I am human. I have the right to do what I want. But believers recognize sin as their bondage, and Jesus Christ changes everything. And so... Jesus allowed himself to be arrested in the garden so we could be set free from the bondage of our sin, our sin. Now, be honest with yourself as I finish. What is enslaving you right now? Are you afraid but trying to convince yourself you're in control? Are you angry but trying to justify it with the wrongs folks have done? Are you bitter or anxious, tired, Are you carrying burdens and weights, trying to put on a happy face, tracing after dreams that either you can't seem to catch or they never quite satisfy? Are you living under the delusion, almost like TikTok, where I'm good enough without honestly thinking about what's at stake? Are you searching or do you have answers? Do you feel paralyzed by the confusion of life around you? then I want you to realize you're no different than each and every one of the disciples and even those soldiers in the mob of the garden. Here's the difference. Will you trust in Jesus as your bondage breaker and, well, bondage bearer? Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we can be forgiven and redeemed and healed and transformed and set free. Jesus drank this cup so you and I can drink the cup of blessing. Is it amazing to you how many times we read Psalm 23 and we wait for funerals to do it? And yet, Jesus said, I drink the cup of suffering so that we can be like David who said, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Watch this. My cup overflows. This is the future of anyone who will trust Jesus Christ. Jesus prepares a place, a meal. Jesus is with us and guides us and protects us, provides for us. But if you reject Jesus, if you think you can do it yourself, then all that's left is to drink the righteous and holy cup of God's judgment. And Christian, when was the last time you thought about and applied the freedom that Jesus provides for you? 
Are you still tempted to live like you're weighed down when in fact you're set free? This passage should amaze us and encourage us. Our response should be worship. Jesus took our sin, bore our iniquities. Jesus knows our weakness and yet in his human weakness protected this crew of disciples. And we know that he has and is still praying for us. But Jesus has plans. He knows everything. He's in control of everything. Has a purpose for everything. And so we can be of good cheer. God has overcome the world, and these verses prove it. And where does your mind go when you think about life? Do you spend more time rehearsing your issues or the promises of God? Do you focus on your problems, or do you bring them to Jesus who prays for you? Scotty Smith, and I end with this, gave us a great reminder. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. So we can risk gentleness because Jesus is near to us in two ways. In proximity, he lives inside of us. And in time, he's returning. So we can now say, because Jesus had the shackles put on him, we can join Martin Luther King. And the anthem of the Christian is, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Are you? Let's pray. Father God, I pray that my friends and family, from my wife to my brothers and sisters in Christ, to my son and my grandchildren, from the youngest to the oldest, as we sing, how vast the love. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning and they don't know you as Savior and Lord, may they feel compelled and safe to come and ask for help. If there are Christians this morning struggling under the tyranny of bitterness, hiding their sin, still acting like the first Adam instead of resting in the second. May they know how vast the love of Jesus is. Peter and his impulsiveness, Thomas and his doubts, Philip and his questions. And yet, Father God, you love us all. As we go into this Thanksgiving weekend, may we realize the greatest thing to be thankful for is the gospel. Jesus was bound so we could be set free. May you get the honor and the glory. And Lord, would you help me to live the sermon I've just preached. In Jesus' name, amen.